Would you please open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel. Last week, I, I started uh, what should be just a two-part series out of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we began last week by looking at the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, and we're going to pick up where we left off at the 12th chapter. I'm, I was interested originally in expositing this section of Scripture uh, with today in mind. Uh, today is a, a, a day that churches all around this nation acknowledge as the Right to Life Sunday, where we reflect on the atrocity of abortion in our culture, and we come together as churches around the nation to, to pray and to ask God to, to heal our land, forgive us our sins, and, and turn the tide on this wickedness. Uh, the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel is a passage in which a child dies. And, um, and, and so it's a, it's a dark section of the Hebrew Bible. It's a sobering chapter as there is a child, an innocent child who dies. Uh, and it, it, it is a, a text in, in, in which it gives us a sort of fitting moment with it being right to Life Sunday for us to pause and reflect and mourn together on the atrocity that, that is abortion in our culture. Uh, that, that said, let's move into the ancient world. The title of today's sermon is Murder He Wrote. Murder, He Wrote is a play on the 1984 uh, American television crime drama series Murder, She Wrote, starring Angela Lansbury, uh, which ran for some 12 seasons. Um, and uh, if you're a music head like me, there's also a popular Jamaican reggae song um, by, by the same title, um, Murder, Murder, She Wrote. So anyway, here we are, and we are going to see the scene of, of 2 Samuel 12, and where we left off last week... Our main character, the historic king David, David uh, gets his hands bloody and, um, and makes a huge mess. And he has a man murdered. And hence the title of our message today, Murder He Wrote. As you turn to 2 Samuel, uh, hopefully you're there already, uh, you'll, you will have noticed that it is a second. There is a 1 Samuel and a 2 Samuel. And it's worth noting that these originally were not parted this way. There, there wasn't a first and a second. We simply part books this way inside of our Bibles uh, because they were just, they were too massive. But in the ancient days, this would have been one sefer or one scroll. You'd have one big fat scroll that was First and Second Samuel together. So that said, as you move into a text like Second Samuel, it is important for you to have the, the whole story of Samuel together. So last week, if you missed it in the introduction, I gave a survey of the whole scroll and then we jumped into this section, this dark hour in Israel's history. I'm not going to repeat that overview that we had last week, but suffice it to say, you do need to know, in case you missed last week, that this is the era of the kings. We move from the era of what were known as the, the, the Shoftim, or the judges, into the era of the kings, uh, who are the Melakim. So we move from Shoftim to Melakim. We move from the era of the judges into the era of the kings. The era of moving into the kings, is a, it's a really dark era. If you know the book of Judges, it, that was also a dark era. However, what becomes scandalous as you move from Shaftim to Melakim is, is that God was supposed to be the king of his people. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. He brings them to the land of promise. He establishes himself as the king over the people, and he gives them these uh, Shaftim, these judges, to be their uh, political and military leaders to provide order to society, but they were not to have a king because God was the king. In addition to the Shaft team, he also sends Navim, uh, that is prophets. So they, 
They have prophets, they have judges, they have elders in their community, they have order to their society, and, and God, Yahweh, was the king of the people. And we, we read in the era of the judges how the people rebelled against this, and how God in his discipline continued to give them grace. Uh, sometimes he let them sit in their sin and, and, and see the mess that it creates, but he would come and he would clean up the mess for them and, and love them and give himself to them. It's a story of unrequited love. In fact, this is repeated all throughout the Bible, from the very first humans, all the way up to the time of kings, all the way up to us today. In the beginning, when God created humanity, uh, humanity rebelled against him and rejected his love. Uh, the story of the Bible just keeps recapitulating this story of unrequited love. God creates, humanity rebels. As a result of rebelling against the giver of life, life is taken back, and so death comes into the creation. As a result of rebelling against the one who uh, designed society and designed family and, and, and wove into it his own divine harmony, as a result of rebelling against him, disharmony comes into creation. So we see death and disharmony and dysfunction and disease. The creation itself is rattled by this sin. There's not a molecule of the universe that isn't touched and stained by this sin. So as the storyline continues, that original act of rebellion just keeps playing itself out. And it's playing itself out because it's played within. You see, the, the problem isn't out there in society. The problem is in here in our hearts. And whatever we end up touching, we inevitably will make a mess of these things, which is why we so desperately need a God who is compassionate and a God who will provide a way of salvation. We, of course, gather today to worship the Savior who was sent, the God who has provided that salvation, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who created the world and, 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 and poured his love out on the world, and, and the God who responded to our rebellion. Uh, in fact, it, it's not a response, you see, as, as though it were some sort of a plan B. It was actually his plan A and a part of his design. You see, before the foundations of the world, he chose a people for himself. And he sent his son, the father did, sent his son in order to be a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And the son then provides this forgiveness for us, this reconciliation for us, atonement for us, so that guilty sinners can be justified in the court of God by the free gift of grace provided in the Son. Now, none of us would come to the Son and seek His forgiveness, and so the Father sends the Spirit into the world to regenerate our, our hearts, to give us new life, so that we will come to Him in repentance and faith, faith itself being a gift of God, so that no one may boast. This wonderful gift, we, we say it is good news. This is where our word gospel comes from. And it is good news in light of the bad news that we're sinners and we've made a mess of things. And here's this good news that not only God forgives us of our sin, but he provides salvation for us. Uh, God chose to do this not in a vacuum, but in history. And so it, 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 the coming of his son to die for his people involves his people, the history of the Hebrews, this community that began with the historical figure Abram, and, and on to Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, God chose through this people to bring salvation to all peoples of the earth as he regenerates and calls and brings uh, his mercy upon people and they're reconciled to him. So we're at that story of the people of Israel and we're at that moment when they are in rebellion against God and, 
and they're shaking their fist at God and pointing their finger at God, and they're saying, we have all these problems as a society, you see, because we, we, we need to have a king. These other nations, they have kings. You know, why can't we have one? Uh, all the cool kids are doing it, you know. You know well, why can't we do it? Why, why, why are you withholding from us, you see? You should know the answer because God is your melech. God is your king. But now you want melechim so that you can be like the other nations. So we move from the shaftim to the melechim. We move from the time of the judges into the time of the kings. And, and God warns them. He warns them about this decision. Uh, but nevertheless, He permits it to happen. And, and, and we see why He warned us. And we see what comes to pass. Uh, the first king, Saul... Uh, Shaul is a, is a miserable man, and he makes, he makes a mess of things. Again, recapitulating that pattern. The next king who is raised up uh, is, is raised up by the, the prophet and the judge, Shemuel, or as we say in English, Samuel, and hence the scroll of Samuel. The, the Sefer Shemuel, the scroll of Samuel, is giving us this transition from the last judge, the last of, of them is Samuel, and he is going to be responsible for raising up the beginning kings. He anoints David as a child, as a young man, and, and David raises up the ranks and eventually uh, comes into the position of Saul, and it is not without its drama. Uh, like, like Saul, David follows in his footsteps and uh, enters into all sorts of rebellion against God. Uh, the little boy that God used to, to throw a rock to show his power and to lift his name among the people, uh, he, he becomes a very dirty, rotten scoundrel in the text. And so last week, as we stepped into the 11th chapter, if you look at chapter 11 quickly, we read at the beginning of the chapter that it came about. Then it happened, it says, in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. And we read at the end of the verse, but David stayed home. David stayed in Jerusalem. So the text begins with a man who's already in compromise. The text is, is, is capturing for us the dynasty and the downfall of David. This is not the beginning of the downfall. This, uh, this murdering of this man Uriah or this sleeping with this woman Bathsheba. This is, this is not the beginning of it. It was already well underway. Reminding us that sin isn't something that just happens. Sin isn't something that you fall into. People will say all the time, you know, I fell into sin. No, you walked into it. Step by step, you walked into it. And you made a home in it. And we, and we have all done it. Uh, and so that, that, there's no, you know, look at you. We've all done it. And, that, and that's what it is. We walk into it. Sometimes we're tempted and, and duped and deceived. Uh, often that is the case. That's, that's how, that's how uh, sin works. It dupes you. It deceives you. It lies to you. It tells you, I'll make you happy. I'll always be by your side. Have a little of this. It'll, you deserve it. You'll feel better. And, and, and then it gets you. And it never delivers on what it promises. Sometimes we're, we're duped because we believe it. Other times we, we run full in and we know what we're getting ourselves into, but we convince ourselves, you know, this will be the last time. Just one more go at it. And, you know, I'll, I'll stop tomorrow. You know, I'll stop tomorrow. And, and, and tomorrow never comes because each day you keep saying tomorrow. 
That, that's the nature of sin. You, we, we walk into it. And so in the 11th chapter, as we see David in dereliction of his responsibility, the kings are supposed to go to battle. The kings uh, represent uh, the, the, the kingdom. And so th- they go and they're supposed to be there. That's what they're supposed to be. And David's no stranger to this. He's, he's, tra- he's trained military. He's a mercenary. He's, he's uh, brutal on the battlefield. Historically, we see in, in the scroll of Samuel. But now, power has gone to his head. Compromise has come to his home. He stays at home when he's supposed to be out doing the work of the Lord. He, he, he is in his home, and, and we read this horrible account of how he is up on the top of his house, and he sees a woman who's a married woman. She's married, in fact, to one of his key military leaders. And we read in the text in in verse 4 that David sends his men, in verse 4, to take her. You see the text? They come and they take her. They come and they take her, and then she uh, 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 lays with David. In fact, the text specifies that he lays with her. David has her her kidnapped. I want to reemphasize this. Uh, It says, they took her. Yikahe in the original Hebrew. Yikahe means to physically force, to physically grab, to, to, to it, it's, it's a kidnapping is what it is. Yikahe, they take her. This is not an account of something that is consensual. This is, this is an account of, of rape. In fact, the word that is used here for lay down, yiskab, yiskab is a term that is used as well for forcing one down. In fact, in the scroll of Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, when David defeats the Moabites, he takes the defeated soldiers and he yeast-cobs them. He forces them to lay down. He uses his force, you will lay down, to these soldiers he defeats. He uses his force as a man to put Bathsheba down and to have intercourse with her. It's a horrible, dark, sad text. David sends his thugs and they, they take her and he, he cobs her. He forces her down. And we read in the text that after being defiled in, in verse 4 that she goes through a ceremonial ritual of cleansing. We read in the text that she purifies herself from her uncleanliness and goes home. It, we relate to that existentially. Um, when you do something with your body or when something has been done to your body, you get that feeling of, I feel, I feel dirty. In fact, you, we, we see this psychologically today in terms of uh, criminological phenomenon. Uh, people who are raped, often the first thing that they do is they, they go take a shower. They feel, they feel, they feel soiled by the thing. It, they're trying to shake what has just happened to them. It's a hard, dark text. I was ac- actually quite surprised after last week's message uh, Several of you shared with me your study Bible notes, and uh, many study Bibles here on verse 4 have a line about it being consensual. Uh, do you have any have study Bibles with a little line like that under verse 4? It says something about, uh, one, one in particular uh, had, had this line about, you know, uh, she didn't fight him, so, you know, she wasn't trying to push him off or anything. I go, how dare you read into God's Word that way? The text says nothing about it being consensual. Throughout the 11th chapter, Bathsheba is referred to in the third person. 
The, the author wants you to see how she's been defiled and, 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 and how she's been objectified. She's in the third person. Her voice is gone. What are you going to do when the king's thugs come and kidnap you? And your husband isn't there to protect you. What are, what are you going to... You're going to yell? You're going to yell for help? How's that going to go over well? In, that, in those days, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. You, you don't even have a voice. You can be raped and you can have no say about it. It's your word against his. And in that culture, you don't have a word. You, you, you can't even testify for yourself. It's a, it's a really dark, messed up situation. You see... David's dynasty, and you see it spiraling out of control. He rapes a woman. And this wasn't the beginning of it. I showed you last week uh, various passages from the scroll of Samuel of all the other women he had conquests with. He has other wives. He has concubines. We're going to, in fact, see that again in the 12th chapter. This is a womanizer. This is a horrible, dark thing. The Bible is against polygamy. The king of Israel is specifically told by the prophet that he must only have one wife. It will bring a demise to the kingdom. You must be a man who's committed to one wife and be a faithful man. Otherwise, the kingdom will fall apart. And that's exactly what is happening as we move from the Shaftim to the Melachim. But the fact of the matter is, sin always shows itself. You will be found out. There is no hiding when it comes, number one, to the all-seeing God. But number two, sin has a way of, of rearing its head and exposing you. Look at these various Bible passages that warn us about the hiding nature of sin. Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Proverbs 10, 18, Whoever conceals hatred has lying lips. John uh, 3, 19 through 20, Everyone who does evil hates the light. Jeremiah 16, 17, Our iniquities are not concealed from God. So as we are going to see, getting into chapter 12, chapter 12 begins this way. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Then the Lord sent. David, you're not getting away with this. I, I, I saw everything, and now I'm sending, I'm sending my prophet to you to confront the situation. Your, your sin has been found out. Then the Lord sent, verse 1 of chapter 12, Nathan to David. In the Hebrew, his name would be pronounced something like Natan. Natan is, uh, is, is a, a, a prophet. He's part of the, the, the Navim that I've been talking about. He's a, a great prophet. If you were reading the scroll of Samuel, we've met him already in the scroll of Samuel. He appears earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He knows the prophet. He's familiar with the prophet. And God sends the prophet to him. And the prophet Natan brings a parable. David doesn't pick up that it's a parable. Uh, David thinks it's a real legal dispute, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, the, the prophets operated not just religiously or spiritually, but also they have roles in the government. Uh, so when people in society have issues and, uh, you know, stuff that's going wrong in the community, they would bring it to the Naveen. They would bring it to, to a prophet and say, hey, this is what's going on in, you know, uh, Bethlehem, or this is what's going on in the marketplace, or, you know, there's this one guy who keeps stealing donkeys or whatever, and, you know, and you bring it to the prophet, and then the prophet, uh, a prophet like Natan, is in the courtroom of David, so he can come to David and say, hey, I, I need to talk to you about this problem that we're having 
you know, over in this part of the city, or, you know, people are reporting this. So, so as he comes in with this parable, uh, it, 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 it would be very rational for you to assume, oh, you're bringing me some kind of a legal dispute or something that you want me to adjudicate as king. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And Nathan came to him, verse 1. There were two men in one city. One of them is rich and the other is poor. So he sets up the parable. There's two guys. One's rich, one's poor. Understand in that, in that culture, poor is poor. Poor is poor. You know, we, we, we think about, you know, being poor or whatever. We, you know, we got homeless people walking around with cell phones. We have no idea in this culture what poor is. You know, like you, uh, you know, no, no diss on homeless people with cell phones. I mean, that's great. But, you know, you travel the world and you see poverty. You go, wow, that, that's really, that's poor. I thought I was poor. That's poor. The, and there's great disparity in that culture. There's not a middle class buffer. So you have, you have a guy of extreme power and position, and then you have one who has little to nothing, who, who is, is probably spending most of his days starving. Okay, so you, so, you know, wrap these characters in your mind. So the rich man had many flocks and many herds, the text says, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. And he would eat of the bread and drink of the cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him, this little lamb. So again, if you're poor and you only have one animal, right, you, you, the animal becomes like a pet in your home. Like, we can't kill this thing and cook it because we're not going to have anything left or whatever. So we can, we, can, we can use the animal, but we only have one. So, you know, you're not balling. You, you don't have a farm. You don't got a bunch of animals running around for, for feeding purposes. And... So this animal becomes like, like a pet to them. And you pet owners know, you pet owners know what that feels like. You, you, you know how you can bond with an animal. Uh, some, some, you know, losing, uh, you know, for dog owners, I know we got cat owners too, uh, but you can even bond with those, those furry little creatures, can't you? Um, and, you, and you lose one or one gets sick and it just, you know, it rips you apart. People, you know, how are you doing? And if you've never bonded with an animal, you just don't understand it. But you, you can bond that way. And uh, for those of you who grew up on farms, you know what it is to, to eat animals, maybe even with your own hands. But you also know that phenomenon of having an animal that you bond with. So here's this poor guy. He has nothing. He's got, he's got one little ewe lamb. And, uh, and he raises it like his children. It's part of the family. And here's this rich guy who's got everything. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man. He's got out-of-town company. He's unwilling to take from his own flock or of his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Okay, so the guy has nothing. He's got this sweet little ewe lamb. He just snuggles it. It's like his daughter, you know. There's this guy with everything. And one of his big baller buddies comes to town or whatever. And, uh, and he's like, well, I got to make you something to eat. Uh, I'm just going to go over and, and, and jack that, that poor guy. I'm just going to take his little ewe lamb and, and we'll barbecue it up, hook it up, get some tortillas, have little lamb tacos or whatever, right? So the parable has the two men, the poor guy has nothing, save her this one little animal, and the rich guy comes and takes it from him. The point of parables is to drive a heavenly message using earthly examples. 
The rich man in the parable is King David. The poor man in the parable is Uriah, who was the husband of Bathsheba, who David raped, and then David has Uriah murdered in order to cover up the rape because she finds out that she was with child. David tried to cover his tracks. He called for Uriah to come back from the battlefield and, and you know, uh, uh, offered, you know, hey, go have a consensual visit with your wife, you know, go, you've been working so hard out there for us on the battlefield, you know, have a couple nights with your wife. And, and Uriah says, no, that's not right. The Ark of the Covenant's out there, like, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is, you know, a military, and that, and that sense is sort of an act of worship, like, we have to protect our nation. The Ark of the Covenant is there. That's the very presence of God rests on the Ark. And I, 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 want, I want to go and do God's work. I don't have time to do this. And so David doesn't, uh, Uriah doesn't go, go, go see his wife. He rests, he rests on the floor. And so, so David, knowing he, it's, this isn't working, gets Uriah drunk, the text says. He liquors him up. And, and even in a state of inebriation, he... He doesn't do it. And, and we all know, you know, adults, if you've had any unfortunate experiences with this, how liquor can dull the senses. How it, it, it can be like the aforementioned uh, 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 sin that dupes you and says, this will make you happy, this will make you free, and you end up enslaved to it. And, and here's Uriah. He gets him liquored up. And, and even in that, you know, you see what kind of a guy this is. He, he doesn't do it. So David orders for him to be murdered. So you have blood on your hands now, big guy, and you're not getting away with it. Your sin has been found out. And here comes the prophet with the parable to expose what you have done with your power. We move from the parable and the power to the next point on the outline, the heart and hypocrisy. Draw your eyes to the text. Verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. Uh, recall, he, he thinks this is like a real scenario going on. This is, this is a guy in my kingdom did this? Oh man, I'm so glad, Nathan, that you're telling me about this. His anger burns and he says to Nathan, as the, word, as, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Hey bro, it's, it's actually about you. It's actually about you. See his anger? Oh, oh the hypocrisy. He has, he has, the text gives us no indication of any anger over what he has done. This is a, a reminder of the nature of sin and hypocrisy in general that comes with sin. We, 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 we often get really, really angry about the sins that we commit. And when someone talks about the sins that you commit or get too close to them, Right? It can well up in you, this, oh, this anger. Uh, you know, I've never gotten angry, you know, if someone's talking about something I've never participated in. Uh, you know, if someone's talking about the evils of, I don't know, rock cocaine or something. I'm, you know, I'm like, what? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds bad to me, you know. But if, if you've fallen into that before, then you go, is he talking about me? You know, or it hits a soft spot. And, and, and then when you see it going on in the culture, too, you can get particularly angry at it. And, and, and you, you see it and you get angry about it. You get self-righteous about it. David, the parable is about you. And you have, the, you have the goal to be angry about it? Yeah, because that's what sin does. We, we tend to get angry 
about our sins. Over the years, being a pastor, I've, I've seen, seen this uh, more times than I, than I care to say. Um, as, as a pastor, you have to bring God's Word. God sends us just like Natan to, to bring His Word. And you bring His Word and um, people get upset about it. You give a message on a particular sin or the Scriptures address a particular sin and, and, and people will be upset at, at the preacher. They will blame the messenger. Who are you to say that? You know, because you touched on something that they've tasted, that they've maybe ruined themselves with, or, or that they're dabbling into. You, you, you preach a message on it, it's going to happen. You talk about it, it's going to happen. Or in this era of social media, you post something, and man, flies in the comments. You know, who are... You know, and in a lot of those cases, you're dealing with someone who has the David syndrome. You've touched something that they're in, and that's why they're so angry about it. You quote a passage of Scripture about uh, well, whatever, you know, and then, oh, are you talking about me? You know, is that about me? Ah, the prophet has David right in that spot. And David and his sin are just unfolding as typical sin does. You think you've gotten away with it, and now you're so angry. He must... Draw your eyes at verse 6. Make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and he had no compassion. He must, he must repay it fourfold, David. Um, Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. You have the requirement in the law of Moses. We read from the law of Moses in our public reading today. You have the requirement in the law of Moses uh, for this fourfold restitution. You, you've taken something that wasn't yours. You've, you've committed a horrible act. Under the law, under the law, right? This, this, is what, this is what you do as a part of making it right. Isn't it interesting that all of a sudden now David knows his Bible? All, all of a sudden he, he invokes the Bible, right? What, what about the adultery stuff? What about the murder stuff? Man, you, you violated, we read the Ten Commandments today. You, you broke a whole bunch of those in the last chapter and chapters before. And you, didn't, you weren't quoting the Bible anywhere in, in any of that. And now all of a sudden, now here, here, here you're the Bible memory master. Uh, later in verse 9, the prophet will say, you despised the word of the Lord. You despised his word and what his word told you. And here you are going, well, you know, yeah, he should obey what the word says and give back fourfold. Here's the chilling verse. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. You're the man. And you can imagine David thinking, like, you know, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there. You know, he was all into this, like, I'm going to get that guy, and he's got to obey the Bible. He's got to pay it back fourfold, and, you know, da 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 you know, and, and then Natan says, you are the man. You are the man. Not only is it Natan saying it, look what the text says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Not just any old God, the true and living God, the God of the land that has been given to you in His providence, the, the loving God who you've rejected, that God says, you are the man. It is I, speaking in the first person from God's voice, which prophets do, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you out of the hand of Saul. You have sinned against me, God is saying. You have violated me. You are the one with the issue. 
it's, it's not Bathsheba's fault. Contrary to, you know, those study Bible notes that biffed it on that one, and other popular preachers I've heard biffing it, the prophet has nothing to say, say about that. You took her, you forced her to lay down. You did this. Further, it's not Joab or the Ammonites' fault for Uriah's death. You killed him. You raped her, you killed him. Look at the text, verse 8. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things. You had it all. You have, you have all the power. You had, you had everything. I, I gave it all to you. Et tanah. The word et tanah that is translated here as gave. Et tanah, it, it, it also means... Um, to permit. I would, I would prefer to translate it actually this as permit, because you see he's talking about the concubines and the wives of Saul. I permitted you at Tanah to, to have all, you, you've had all these things. You had all these women, and the one that you didn't have, this poor man, Uriah's wife, the one that you didn't have, you said, I want that too. At Tanah, I, I, I permitted you to have all of this. This is quite the opposite of the text that we have in Genesis 39. You recall uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife and that, that whole scene and how she's trying to get him to jump in bed with him and, and he says, no, no, no. And he actually ends up in, in jail. His life is on the line for it. I'm not going to do that. Oh, David, David did it dirty and he had been doing dirty for a long time. I, etana, I, I, let, I let you get away with all of that, and you still wanted more. You have, verse 9, despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now keep in mind, Natan is risking his life. David could have him killed. No question. Kings kill prophets all the time. Kings, kings kill people all the time. That's the ancient world. It's, it's that way in many parts of the world even today. I'm not going to start naming names, but you just, you just kill you. You come at them this way. But Natan, but Natan is being sent from the Lord. Natan has the spirit of the Lord. Further, I would submit... At a, at a personal level, Natan is very likely close to David and David's friend. You ever had to call a friend out for something? It's a hard thing to do. Knowing they might not hear you, they might attack you, they might misrepresent you, knowing it could be the end of a friendship. But you risk it when you love someone. Proverbs 27, verse 6. If you're taking notes, it's a good one to write down. Proverbs 27, 6. Better are the wounds of a friend than the deceitful kisses of an enemy. I know in my own life, I'm, I'm so thankful uh, for, for friends that can call me out on things and do. You, you, you are risking a relationship. He's probably risking his life as well, but better are the wounds of a friend than the deceitful kisses of an enemy. If you find yourself surrounded by people who are always telling you what you want to hear, you are in great danger, friend. You need to have people in your life who can speak to your life, and you need to give them permission to do so. 
Now, we know that Nathan, Natan, his relationship with David here after this uh, remained. And we're going to see as we keep reading in the text, he, he receives from him. And the Lord uses this confrontation to, to humble and even restore David. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 5, that David actually names one of his sons that he later has by Bathsheba. He names one of his sons Nathan. So this, this friendship survived this encounter. Nevertheless, not everything will survive. There's going to be a grave consequence. So we move to the next point on the outline uh, concerning the consequence and the child. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, Natan says to David, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword will not depart. That is a prophecy regarding the internal strife of the royal family. Your home is going to have perpetual strife. Thus says, verse 11, look at the text, thus says, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. The first incident of this occurs between David's son Ammon and his half-sister Tamar. You keep reading the text, you see this prophecy is fulfilled. David's son is like his daddy. He wants forbidden flesh. And this time it is his half-sister Tamar, a beautiful woman, and David's son rapes her. And then he tries to exile her out of the kingdom. But her other brother, Absalom, hears about it, and long story short, he has Ammon killed. You rape my sister, it's over. He has him killed. David then has to exile Absalom. Long story short, Absalom eventually returns and leads a rebellion against David, and then, and then David is exiled out of his own kingdom as a defeated king. Providentially, another long story short, uh, God brings David back. And they have a big a brouhaha, a big battle. It's a bloody one. 20,000 men die. More tragic for David is the news of the death of his son, Absalom, who when riding his mule gets his head caught in a fork of branches of an oak tree and, and he's suspended there and then he is slain by Joab. Brokenhearted over the death of his, of his son, David mourns. He mourns. And I'm quoting here 2 Samuel 18, 33. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would, would I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I wish it was me who died. His, his home goes into all of this mess, just as the prophet said. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Even the king reaps what he sows. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin, and you will not die. What a, what a moment that must have been. I've sinned against the Lord. And then the prophet opens his mouth and he goes, What's he going to say? You're going to die tonight. You know, uh, I'm going to kill everybody you love. You're going blind. You know, what, what's he going to say? Like, he has, God has every right to, to snuff you out, 
to Ananias and Sapphira you, to Lot's wife you, turned into a pillar of salt. You're, you're a dirty, horrible, despicable man. I've sinned against you. And then Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. Death was the penalty for adultery, according to Leviticus 20.10. David can quote the Bible for all his fourfold stuff, but brother, uh, you, you, know, you know the penalty for what you've done. It is death. You deserve death. But the prophet says, God has forgiven you. One of David's most beautiful psalms is Psalm 51. I want to put it in front of you. You see there's a little header there at the top. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, David writes. O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. He acknowledges what I said earlier, that the problem's inside of us. We're not sinners because we sin. We actually sin because we're sinners. We're born this way. I was brought into the world this way. I'm, I'm, I'm dirty. I, I need to be washed. I, I need my transgressions blotted out. Behold, verse 6, you desire the truth in the innermost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. When you're in sin, it's, it's hard to have the joy of the Lord. And that's by design, that's by his mercy, because he, he doesn't want you to have joy in that. Restore that joy that I, that, that I had before. Oh God, I need you to do something. Then I will teach your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. It's a powerful psalm. And it's coming from this context. This dirt, this womanizing, this oppression, this blood guilt. But here we see God has changed his heart. God has drawn him in repentance. Another, another psalm that we have of David that, uh, that scholars believe happens around this time is Psalm 32. Look at this one. In Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The blessed one reminds me of the sermon on the, 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 the Beatitudes and and Jesus is talking about who are the blessed. How blessed is the one whose transgression are forgiven. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. When I kept silent about my sin, 2 Samuel 11, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever and heat in the summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I... I I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, 
and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He didn't hide when Nathan confronted him. He said, you're right, I've, sin I've sinned against God. But understand this, that wasn't David's doing. That was God's doing. Repentance and faith are works of God that He gives to us in spite of ourselves. Now, He's forgiven, but that doesn't mean that there's no consequences. As we already saw the prophecy about his household, and I shared with you, he's got a son who rapes his daughter. He's got another son who kills that one. He's got, he's got all kind of drama going on. You, you thought the Kardashians were wild. This, this is next level, okay, what's going on in his home. So there's still consequence. And here's, here's the heavy consequence, verse 14. Because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born of you will die. The child who is born of you will die. Now, if you have uh, any uh, emotional, what do they call it, EQ, uh, if you have any EQ here, you read this verse and you, you go, how's that fair? An innocent child dying for the guilty? I mean, kill David. Why, why are you, you going to take the child? The child hasn't done anything. There's a website called gotquestions.com that has a, a lot of wonderful material that you can learn from, and it comes through the Bible and deals with common questions and objections to things that happen inside of the Bible. They have a, a full entry on this. I want to quote some of it for you, but you can read the rest on Got Questions. We should be bothered by the effects of sin. Mature Christians understand this, but it doesn't make living in a fallen world any easier. In the case of David's infant son, some people feel angry at God for killing the child. There are two main points of contention that can cause problems in our thinking. The first is that God did not deal with David harshly enough. But this accusation ignores the context of the passage at hand. God did indeed punish David, and he did so threefold. David would never again have peace in his house. He would be publicly shamed for his private sin, and at the apex, his son would die. It is an honor-based culture. The, the ancient Near East. Some things are actually worse than death in that culture, like public humiliation. Dishonor would have been bad enough for the common citizen, but as God made a point of reminding David, he was no common citizen. He was the king. So although God did not kill David for his evil deeds, the punishments he received caused him to live in shame. David did not get off easy. A second point of contention is that when God sent the illness that killed the child, he was unjustly punishing the child. However, from God's perspective, he was not punishing the child, he was punishing David. The king's grief was so severe that his servants actually thought that he might die. And we'll see that as we continue in the text. Another thing to remember um, is that the wages of sin is death. What I said in the beginning about God the Creator and how we rebelled against Him, and I noted he, He's the giver of life and He has every prerogative to take life back, which is why 10 out of 10 people die. We we all die because we're all a part of this rebellion. And as a result, when people say things like, you know, why, 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 if, how can God be good when evil happens to good people? The problem with the objection is that there are no good people. We saw in Psalm 51, I'm born in sin. Uh, we're born with this condition. God, God, has, uh, God is the giver of life and the taker of life. And that's a hard thing for those who don't want to bow the knee to God to say that you are God, you are the giver of life, you are the taker of life. 
In Romans 5.12, we read that sin entered the world through Adam and death came through sin because all sinned. This child, this child would die. Further, this objection, it, it, it assumes much. You, you don't know what else God is doing. Uh, maybe this child was going to you know, grow up and do something crazy or suffer some other horrible death or something else was going to happen or whatever, and God is doing this by grace to rescue that child from uh, another horrible fate. We, we don't know. So then, verse 15, Nathan went to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, and he was very sick. Notice in the text how Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's widow. It's a, it's a reminder, right? This is Uriah's widow. This is, what you, this is what you did. You raped her. You had him killed. This is Uriah's widow. Though he received mercy, there was still a consequence. There was still death. And there's still this tragic destiny of his house unraveling. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 16. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. He was unwilling and would not eat food with them. This is reminiscent of Uriah who was on the ground. He's on the, he's on the ground. He's... Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might, not, since he might do himself harm? Notice they're afraid. They're afraid of David. They're afraid of what he could do to them or what he could do to himself. They're, they're afraid to do it. Bathsheba would have been afraid, too, when he came and kidnapped her. This, this is not, you know, this is a dirty dude. But now we see him broken and in repentance, and, and God is breaking him down. David saw, verse 19, that the servants were whispering together, and David perceived that the child was dead. And so David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, he's, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself. He changed his clothes, and he came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house and he, when he requested, they set food before him, and he, he finally eats. And then the servant said, what, what is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and, and wept, and when the child's dead, you're, you're eating food? And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? Notice the last clause here. I will go to him though he will not return to me. David believes in the afterlife. He acknowledges this, this child isn't gone from existence. This, this child has been taken by God. This child is with God. I, I will, I will, I'll see him. I'll, I'll see him again. Serve the food. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's acknowledging the mess that he has made, and he's also acknowledging the goodness of God, that there will be reunion. I shared with you in the introduction that I wanted to do the 12th chapter because it is Right to Life Sunday. This is actually a passage that brings a lot of people comfort. If you have the unfortunate uh, experience of being duped uh, by the abortion system, uh, many have been led to believe that it's not the taking of an innocent life, and they come to learn that later. 
And they carry great guilt and and shame as a result of this. Uh, This is a passage that brings many comfort because it's a passage that assures the reader of the afterlife of of children who've been uh, taken, of children who have died. This is also a passage of comfort for those who've had miscarriages and lost babies. You have a a passage that is is of a child in in the afterlife, a child who loses its life but will one day be reunited with those who are in God. So it's a passage that provides comfort, but it's also just a very dark passage, and it seemed a fitting passage for us to be in this Lord's Day as we reflect on uh, the Right to Life Sunday, as we remind ourselves what the truth is in this cultural moment. As a sidebar here, a a quick sidebar to acknowledge uh, uh, what happens in abortion. Number one, scientifically speaking, at the point of conception, an unborn human child is a unique individual living being. Scientifically speaking, at the point of conception, the unborn human child is a unique individual, has his own DNA. It's not its mother's body, so this is not a matter of women having the right thing, you know, having the right to do whatever they want to do with their bodies, because abortion is taking another body. Uh, if the government tried to tell you you can't cut your hair or, or, or cut your nails or what, you know, then you'd have a right to say, hey, this is my body, I can do what I want. But this is, this is a separate body. That is scientifically a fact. Dr. Micheline Matthews Roth of Harvard University uh, Medical School says it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. It's growing, it's developing, it's responding, it's functioning, it's burning food and oxygen, it's giving off waste products, its cells are reproducing. Those are the properties of a living being. That's a life. So when people say, well, we don't know when life begins, that's not true. Those, those are, well, it, it, fine, it's alive, but it's just a blob of cells. No, no, no. What kind of cells? Those are human cells. That's a human. The zygote doesn't turn into a human. The zygote is human. Secondly, as offspring of two other human beings, the unborn human child is also a human being for the full duration of its, of its existence. It's not a blob of cells. The cells are human. If you're tempted to disagree, then you have to answer a difficult question. How do two human beings create a separate living being that is not a human? That's a, that's a, a violation of the law of biogenesis. A blob of cells doesn't become human. It is human. Mom and dad are human beings. They reproduce another individual human being. Uh, So what is it? Uh, A human, because it came from two humans. According to the law of biogenesis, that's just the fact. Because mom and dad cannot produce anything other than what they are. They're humans, so the zygote is human. Using biology, laws of science, and really straightforward common sense, it's easy for us as we engage our culture to make these points. Like David in his sin, he... Uh, made a mess of things and, and rationalized it, so too we live in a culture of, of death and there's much rationalizing. But we need to be like the prophet Nathan and stand up against this and say, no, you are the man. You are the man. You've, you've done this. That, that is human. Two humans make a human. That's what's in the womb is human. Uh, two humans can't make a shark. Here's a picture of a shark. I just had to show you a picture. Actually, that's a dolphin right there in gestation. The shark's on the next slide. A bottlenose dolphin, about six months in gestation period. It's a blob of cells. No, nope, that's, that's, that's a dolphin. Here's a shark. Here's a, here's a, this one's cool. This is a penguin in an eggshell. 
Isn't that pretty cool? Here's a two-month-old cheetah, right? That thing's going to grow up and become like the fastest, uh, you know, flesh-eating creature. There it is, all helpless. A baby elephant, and of course, a baby human. In terms of embryology and fetal growth, you have at the point of conception a human. You have at the point of conception a living thing. Because two living things can only make a living thing, and whatever those living things are, if they are cheetahs or sharks or, or, or elephants, they, they will procreate after their kind. The unborn human child has a life that we ought to respect because human beings are special kinds of living beings. They are personal beings. This is not about uh, uh, any, uh, politics. This, is not, you know, this is, isn't a right versus left issue. This is just an, an issue of morality. Death is a horrible thing when you take the life of another, in particular, the life of a child. And we have a passage in front of us with that, and, and we can be so scandalized by that. And non-believers would read a, a verse like this here in 2 Samuel and go, how, how did your God do that? And then you bring up abortion, and you expose the hypocrisy of our land. Now, let's get back to the text and... Uh, prepare our hearts to receive from the Lord's table this morning. As we continue in the text, we see the birth and the bloodshed. We read in verse 24 that David comforted Bathsheba. He went into her and laid with her. She gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. Solomon. Even in judgment, God is merciful. God gives David and Bathsheba another son, who, who uh, is going to take up the reins after David. He will become king. Uh, interesting Bible fact here, where we have this line, the Lord loved him. This is the only person in the Old Testament of whom it is said Yahweh loved him. Verse 25, And sent word through Nathan the prophet, he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake, a nickname given to Solomon here. And now, as you continue in the passage, and we're not going to read the rest of it, but what happens on the heels of this drama is more bloodshed. Joab fights against, if you look at verse 26, Rabbah and the sons of Ammon. There's war, there's bloodshed. But this time, we see this time, unlike what we saw in chapter 11, verse 1, this time David goes out as he was supposed to. Verse 29, David gathered all the people and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. This time, the king is doing what he's supposed to be doing. So, so with sin, we see those cross-references of the Psalms that David's broken. David acknowledges, I, I don't deserve anything. I, I don't deserve anything. I, I deserve to die. And you were gracious, and you spared me, and you cleansed me. And, and oh, God, you're so good that, that you would forgive me. But there's still consequences. I lost a son. My house is, 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 is a hot mess. And, and now there's all this blood in the land and, and, and war, and, 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 it, and it just keeps going on as you keep reading the text. There's a lot of blood, a lot of battle, and a lot of pain. By way of conclusion to today's message, we want to reflect on the sobering reality of sin and the messes that we make with it. We don't want to read this passage and go, oh, dirty David. We need to turn to our own hearts and acknowledge that we, we are the man. We are, we are just like him. Last week, by way of conclusion, I gave you three uh, points. I, I, I described to you the process of sin that we learned from this passage, the, the pattern that comes along with sin, and also our need for a purifier. 
This week, I'll add uh, three final Ps to the text as we prepare our hearts for the communion table. And the first is power. We have the, 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 the saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is, a, this is a story, the story of David, of a child who was used mightily by God but becomes corrupted by power. Listen, your talent, your talent can take you places your character can't sustain you. You get power, and you see this happen all the time in Hollywood, sports, whatever. You know, a good, hardworking person or whatever gets that power, and, and a huge mess comes with this. We, we see the text of Scripture describing this. Power. Let us, let us be mindful of this and the, and the power that God has given to us in our own lives and places that He takes us, and, and be careful with it. A second point by way of conclusion is perpetuity. Sin has a ripple effect. It just ri- it ripples out. David, yes, you have forgiveness, but there's still consequence. Uh, often, this is how you can tell the difference between someone who's truly repentant or not. If it's just crocodile tears or it's too, true contrition. The person of true contrition, the person who's brought to the place of repentance, acknowledges, I, ha- I have consequence. Right? The person who doesn't, they'll say things like, I already said I was sorry, you know. Let me just get on with it. I already said I was sorry, you know. I told the truth. I said I was sorry. You go, mm, yeah. Were you, though? Are you sorry, though? The person who's truly sorry acknowledges this and sees, okay, there's consequence. Sin has perpetuity. And in fact, as you read the rest of the Samuel scroll, that's exactly what you see. Uh, Bathsheba's father gets involved later. Um, Bathsheba's uh, father and David's kids and a huge mess and the kingdom gets ripped apart. Solomon breaks David's heart. It's just, look, there's perpetuity to this. As we say, you made your bed, you must lie in it. But the good news, the good news, the final point, as we conclude, the good news is that God purifies sinners. We see the power of sin, the perpetuity of its effects, but we also see in this passage... Uh, the purifier, the one who comes and washes us of our sins. The king of Israel represents the people. And so here you see in his sin, the people, the people are like him. We're, we're all sinful. We all need a savior. The king needs a savior. You need a savior. Brothers and sisters, he has come. And as we come to the communion table now, and we have uh, the bread before us and the cup before us, we have those symbols of what he has provided for us. Our king isn't like David. He didn't stay home in the face of battle. Our king came into the battlefield of planet Earth and died at the hands of it in order to redeem a people for himself. Our king would, in fact, be a descendant of David and come through the line of David. He comes into this this dirty lineage and he washes it as snow. And God says, I will remember your sins no more if you are in him. I pray that there's not any here today who would leave this place, one, not thankful of this great thing that God has done for us, of the gospel, but, but two, that there'd be none among us who would leave and go, eh, I don't, I don't want that, or, you know, no, oh. come to him. He is mighty to save. He is good. He is loving. He will forgive you, and, and he will do so much more if you come to him. Let's pray, and we'll sing and partake in communion. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your love for us. I thank you that your word is raw. You didn't leave out the dirty and the dark. 
you, you, just, you just revealed it as it was. We get to see the darkness of it. We get to be reminded that we uh, uh, are, are not strangers to these things. And Lord, as you have been merciful to David, we pray that you would be merciful to us. That you would create a clean heart in us, O God. That you would renew a steadfast spirit within. That you would return us to the joy of our salvation. And that you would cause us to walk in the way of righteousness. Lord, forgive us for our sins are many. Forgive our hypocrisy as we have looked at others for the very things that we commit. And we can see it in them, but we can't see it in our own hearts. God, do a work in us now as we come to the table and we close our service with song. Do a work deep within us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.